God now, our Old Testament reading is from Exodus 19, 1 through 6. Here in Exodus 19, God has delivered the people from Egypt. He's brought them into the wilderness. He's brought them to the foot of Mount Sinai, and He is about to meet with them and to make a covenant with them, promise to be their God and make them His people forever. Exodus 19, 1-6. This is the very Word of God. In the third month, after the children of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on the same day they came to the wilderness of Sinai. For they had departed from Rephidim, had come to the wilderness of Sinai, and camped in the wilderness. So Israel camped there before the mountain. And Moses went up to God, And the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the children of Israel, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings, and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice, and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. And our New Testament text for our sermon this morning, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4-12. through 12. Coming to Him, that is Christ, as to a living stone, Rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. You also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Therefore, it is also contained in the Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Therefore, to you who disbelieve, he is precious. Uh, to, to To you who believe, he is precious. But to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble, being disobedient to the word to which they also were appointed. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, His own special people, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light, who once were not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Beloved, I beg you, As sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. Thanks be to God for His Word. Let's pray now. Lord God, we thank You that You've given us Your Word and revealed to us with brilliant clarity who You are, who we are, and how You save us. Build us up now by Your Word 
Give us faith. We cannot produce faith. Give us faith by Your Spirit's work. Faith in Your Word. Faith in all Your promises. Give us the grace You promise in the Gospel once again. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. All over the past couple of weeks together, we've been looking at the officers of Christ's church that He's given. Deacons and elders. We've looked at how important those offices are and uh, why we have elders, why we have deacons, what their job is like, what they're supposed to be doing, and how we can be supporting them in that, and uh, what kind of men are supposed to fill these roles. But as, as I was working through those things, and as we've looked at them together as a church, uh, it, it came to my mind that we should also think about this. What's a member? Right, all this talk about elders and deacons, we might get the sense, well, they're the important ones in the church. They do the work of the ministry, and we're, you know, we have a, we have a place, but it, the member's role, what, what is that? We want a robust view of the leadership that Christ has given to his church, of the real authority he's committed to ruling elders to rule, to deacons to lead in mercy ministry, but loved ones at the same time. There's an important sense in which every member of Christ's church is an officer in Christ's church. Not, not ordained, not an elder or a deacon, not with that kind of authority, but, but we need to remember that Christ places an extremely high value on being a member of His church. And that there are great privileges and great responsibilities and duties that come with it as well. This is, one of the great, uh, this is one of the great points that the Reformation reclaimed. The priesthood of all believers. Right? That every, every member of Christ and every member of Christ's church, every believer is a priest. And can, through Christ, go directly to God. Through Christ, is called to serve God. Through Christ, is called to worship God. The Reformers emphasize so well that the laity are not just passive observers to what the the clergy, the professionals do. But they are themselves the church and called to be the church together. To borrow an illustration from Sinclair Ferguson that he's, that he's used, when you come to church, um, when you become a member of a church, it's not like you get on board of a train, right? You, you, you get on and, and uh, you just sit back and enjoy the ride while the, the guy up front, he, he drives and, and you just enjoy it. You know, you're along for the ride. That's not at all what being a church is like and being a member of a church. There are, there are no passive passengers in his church. A more accurate picture would be to say the church is, is like a ship and it's all hands on deck. Not, not a passenger, right? Not, not, not a passenger boat, but a ship where, where, where we are all, all hands on deck. We're, we're manning this ship all together. Every single member of our church, brothers and sisters, every one of you who's a member here of LOPC has an important and vital part to play in this church. This is even brought up in our, in our book of church order. It says this, before it talks about elders and deacons, it talks about members, and it says this, the power which Christ has committed to His church is not vested in the special officers alone, elders and deacons and pastors, but in the whole body. All believers are endued with the Spirit and called by Christ to join in the worship, edification, and witness of the church 
which grows as the body of Christ, fitly framed and knit together through that which every part supplies, according to the working and due measure of each part. So, loved ones, that's what we are considering this morning. What does it mean to be a member of Christ's church? To answer that, let's look at 1 Peter 2. We're going to ask three questions of the text here. 1 Peter 2, 4-12, which we just read. We're going to ask three questions of our text to get at this answer. What it means to be a member. First then, first question, what makes a member? What makes a member a member? Peter starts out in verse 4 by telling us what makes a member. He says, coming to Him. Now stop right there. He says, coming to Him. Coming to Christ. And that right there is the most basic thing that makes a member a member, isn't it? It's faith in Jesus Christ. Union with Christ. That makes you a member. Once you have joined Christ and been united to Him, as we've already heard in some of the words we said earlier, you join Christ And through him, you're joining his body, the church, as a whole. Paul writes, Romans 12, 5, he says, We, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. So Peter says, you become a member of Christ's church when you come to Christ himself. Who is Christ? What does Peter have in mind? He's talking about coming to Christ here, but he has a particular, uh, uh, some particular ideas about what he wants us to know about Christ here in this passage. In verse 4, he says, uh, he says this, coming to him, that is Christ, as to a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. A living stone. What is this? What's Peter talking about? He goes on to tell us in verse 6, where he quotes from Isaiah 28, he says, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Peter is talking about Christ. He quotes Isaiah 28. In Isaiah 28, God is promising judgment on those who do not believe, who've rejected his covenant and broken his laws. But in the middle of all that judgment, he promises a new foundation a new cornerstone that he's going to build the new temple and the new people of God on. And it's Christ. He's the cornerstone, Peter is, is saying. And then Peter goes on, he quotes two more scripture passages which make this contrast so sharp for us. He says that uh, either Christ is, that God, God is building this new temple in Christ, laying this new foundation, that's Christ, and either you get in on the building project and you're a stone and you're built in on Christ, or you stumble over him, you trip over him, and you face judgment. Peter cites uh, Psalm 118.22, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. He cites Isaiah 8.14, it's a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Why is Peter doing this? What's he setting out for us? What's he setting out for us here? He's putting as, he's making it as black and as white as he can, right? as starkly as he can, using this language from the Old Testament. He's saying Jesus is the foundation of God's new building project. The new temple, the new people of God. And either you are joined with Him and you're saved, or you stumble over Him and you are judged. It doesn't depend on being Jewish or being a Gentile. He's saying He's writing to those who are both. 
Christians, Jews and Gentiles alike, saying you don't get into this, you don't get into this new building project of God, this new temple of God, by, um, uh, by your pedigree or by your ancestry, your ethnicity, or anything like that. It depends only on being united to Jesus Christ. There's a strong warning in Peter's words here. Um, Israel was filled with people who thought they were part of God's covenant, but weren't. Members of the visible covenant, not members of Christ. Not united spiritually to Christ. Peter is saying you have to belong to Christ. doesn't matter if you grew up in a Christian home or if you attend church regularly and give faithfully, if you're not also at the same time united to Christ. You are not a member. You're not made a member of Christ's church by your outward obedience or your participation in the, in, in the life of the church. You're made a member through faith in Jesus Christ. So, that's what makes a member. Faith in Christ. You believe in Jesus Christ, you're united to Christ, and then through that, united to his church. Second question, what is a member? We talked about what makes a member a member, but what is a member? You become a member of Christ, you become a member of his church. What does it mean? What privileges come with it? What responsibilities come with it? What does this mean for who you are now? These verses give us four things here to help us with this. Four things about what a member of Christ's church is. The first one is that if you are a member of Christ and his church, you're part of the new temple of God. Verses 4 and 5, the logic here goes like this, that you come to Christ, he's the living stone, he's that cornerstone, as we said, the foundation of the new temple. And then if you come to him, you're like these other stones which are being built up on Christ, in Christ, into the spiritual house of God, the the, the spiritual temple of God. This is significant for us. Think about the temple and the Old Testament. What's it for? It's where God's presence is with his people. It's where his covenant blessing is. It's where his spirit is. It's where his glory is. It's where God with us is. Bring it into the New Testament. Christ is the true temple of God. He himself says that he is. In John chapter 2, the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. The Jews said, It's taken 46 years to build this temple. Will you raise it up in three days? But Jesus was speaking about the temple of his body. Jesus is God with us filled with the Spirit, the place where God meets and dwells with His people and blesses His people with the covenant of grace. He's the temple. The temple in the Old Testament was just pointing forward to Him. But He's not the temple in isolation. In Christ, God is laying the foundation, but now He's building on that. He's building up the temple with you and with me and all the members of His church. When you have faith in Christ... You become a member of Christ and you become part of this temple. Brothers and sisters, it's a breathtaking privilege to be part of God's temple. The temple is the dwelling place of God. Where the Lord of the universe, who is holy, 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 
whom the highest heavens cannot contain. He comes and he dwells in his church. And he makes it the place where he is going to dwell forever. He takes sinners who have no place before him, who would be consumed by his holiness, right, and should be under his wrath and curse, and he makes us pure, and he enters our hearts, and he takes up residence there, and he fills us with his spirit, and he makes us his holy place. Think about the Old Testament temple, the Holy of Holies. How many of the people of Israel could go in there? Just the high priest, once a year, to show them how holy God is, that even his special people couldn't go all the way in. But now, you're the temple in Christ. You're the Holy of Holies in Christ, where God himself dwells, taking up residence in you. He so cleansed you and set you apart as holy in Christ, forgiving you of your sins, washing you, counting you righteous in Christ. He has made you his home where he dwells. It's a marvelous privilege. That's what it means to be a member. That's the first thing Peter's telling us. You're part of his temple where God dwells. The second thing he says here, if you're a member of Christ and his church, you are a royal priest of God. You're not only the temple, but you're also a priest in the temple, serving there, ministering there. Peter brings this up twice in these verses. First, verse 5, he says that in Christ you are a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And then again, verse 9, you are a royal priesthood, a holy nation. And when we read read Exodus 19, verse 6, there the Lord says to Israel, as he's establishing the covenant there at the foot of Mount Sinai with them, there he says to Israel, you will be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Words very similar to what Peter's words are, of course. Peter's alluding to this. There in Exodus, God is, dis- is calling out the whole nation of Israel to be a nation of priests. Now, of course, there is a, distinct, a distinction in, in Old Testament Israel between those who are the priests and the Levites who are, who are serving in the temple and, and everyone else. And there are certain things that the priests are called to do that not every Israelite is called to do. But God wants his people to know that even though that distinction is important, it's also important for them to know they are all his priests. They are all holy to the Lord, all set apart to the Lord, not just those who are the so-called professionals, but all of them belong to the Lord, are, are, are to serve the Lord. Uh, uh, not, not, uh, they're, they're to think of themselves as responsible for teaching and keeping the commandments and the law as having this special and close relationship with their covenant Lord. If that was the case in the Old Testament, that every member of Israel was a spiritual priest before the Lord, how much more in the New Covenant? We are the priests of God. You are a priest of God. Every Lord's Day, when you come into worship, you come as a priest of God. You come to minister in His holy temple. You come to offer spiritual sacrifices to Him. Not sacrifices to earn His favor, but sacrifices of thanksgiving, sacrifices of commitment to Him. 
and you, you, you come to worship and you're not left standing out in the Gentiles' court or, or, or anything like that, right? You come into the very presence of God in heaven as a priest before Him in Christ to minister there before Him. You come with boldness to the very throne of God. Not just in corporate worship either. It's in your whole life. You are all called to full-time Christian ministry, aren't you? You're a priest to the Lord. Every aspect of your life. All of us in the church. Men, women, boys, girls, elders, deacons, everybody. We're called to be priests of the Lord. We have, as members of Christ's church, brothers and sisters, you have higher and better privileges in Christ, more open access to the throne of grace than the high priest had in the Old Testament. It's a glorious privilege. You know more of God. You know more of Christ. You know more of salvation. You've tasted more of His goodness. If you're a member, you're a priest. Third thing Peter tells us, If you're a member of Christ and His church, you are one of God's elect. Verse 9, Peter says, you are a chosen generation. You are are elect. All these things we're receiving from God. He's making us His temple. He's making us His priests there. Why are we receiving all these things from Him? Because of His sovereign purpose and His sovereign grace, right? He chose you. Again, strong echoes here from Peter to the Old Testament uh, with the exodus from, from, from Egypt. Uh, no God had ever done what Yahweh the Lord had done with Israel, choosing them for himself, bringing them out of slavery, right? Not waiting for them to, to, to clean up their act in Egypt, but just going in and by his sovereign grace, rescuing them and bringing them to himself by his sovereign choice. And maybe some of the Israelites thought to themselves, you know what, he chose us, he did this for us, what he's done for no one else, because we were pretty, pretty great. We were, we were, we were pretty talented, we had a lot of potential, or, or we, were, we were on our way to becoming very numerous, and God knew we were, we were a good choice, a good candidate for his kingdom. But God says, Deuteronomy 7, to his people, he says, it was not because... You are more in number than any other people that the Lord set His love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that He swore to your fathers. We're not God's people because we have potential or we're good or great or any such thing. We're sinners, but He chooses us out of His love. Not because of us, but because of Him. There's a wonderful comfort for us here. God chose you when you were in slavery to sin, lost in it, dead in it. He chose you out of His free grace simply because He loved you. He set His love on you as one of His elect. That simple fact should be enough to delight us and comfort us forever, shouldn't it? He chose me not because He needed me, not because I was a good candidate for him, but just because he loved me out of his sheer grace and love. Even though I hated him and deserved to die under his wrath and under his curse, he loved me. And because I didn't earn it, I can't forfeit it.
This is what it means to be a member of Christ's church. To belong to Christ, to have union with Christ, and union with His church tells you God chose you because He loved you. What a glorious privilege. What did He choose us for? This is our last thing here that Peter mentions that we are as members. The fourth thing, he says, if you are a member of Christ in His church, then you are God's own treasured people. Verse 9, he writes, uh, but you are His own special people. God's purpose from the beginning with His people was that they would be His own treasured possession. That they would be precious to Him. His delight, His treasure. The object of His affection and love and joy. Exodus 19.5, we read this, You shall be My treasured possession. God tells them again, Deuteronomy 7, 6, The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for His treasured possession. Malachi 3, 17, They shall be Mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up My treasured possession. If you're a member of Christ, belong to Christ, and part of His body, the church, the Lord loves you, and He has made you His treasured possession. He knows you. He delights in you. He treasures you. He's bound Himself to you and committed Himself to your good. His desire is not simply to save you, but to make you His own in covenant relationship forever. He delights in His people. He delights in you. He sings over you, we're told in Scripture. There's no higher privilege than that, is there? to be a sinner under the wrath and curse of God, and then He saves you, and not just barely, but saves you for Himself because He delights in you. Brothers and sisters, there is no other privilege that can match this. To belong to Him, to have His delight in us by His grace. There is nothing lacking in being just a member of a church, is there? You're His treasured possession. Every member of you. So, brothers and sisters, you are the new temple dwelling place of God. Holy dwelling place of God. You are a priest in that temple, in Christ. You were chosen by God, elected by God, by His sovereign grace, not because of anything in you. And it's all because He wants you as His treasured possession forever and ever. It's a glorious privilege. All this is ours because of Christ. Because of our union with Christ. Because of that, God has brought us who are not His people, made us His people. We who didn't know mercy, He has abundantly shown us mercy. Brothers and sisters, remember these things. Glory in these things. This is your identity in Christ. Remind yourself who you are and the high privilege that it is to be part of Christ and part of His church. But there's more. There's more that Peter says here. There's more we need to hear. As the famous line from the old Spider-Man movies puts it, with great power comes great responsibility. Right? With these great privileges of membership come great responsibility too. And that's what I want to close with. Our final heading. Our third question that we're asking of this text. What must members do? We've seen what makes us members. We've seen what members are. What are we supposed to do? Four things, four duties of membership. 
First is worship. If we're a temple, our purpose is worship, isn't it? If we're priests in that temple, our primary purpose is to worship God. Verse 5 says, Our purpose is to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Verse 9 says that the purpose of God in saving us is that we may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called us out of darkness into His marvelous light. So it's our duty to worship God. It's not an optional thing for us. This is our purpose. This is, this is not unimportant in comparison with other things. It's the most important thing. The most important work in our lives is worship. That's a priest's most basic job, isn't it? That you're there for worship. You come to worship. You participate in worship. You're not in worship as a passive observer. You have as much of an important role in it as the person leading the service. You're there too, worshiping the Lord, participating in it, offering a sacrifice to the Lord. Come actively, brothers and sisters. Be ready for worship. Prepare for worship. Be committed to worship. You're a priest in the temple of God. So come and be active in it. And give your heart in it. That's a duty as a member of Christ in His church. The second thing, one another, one another. One anothering is a member's duty. Being a member of Christ means you're a member of His church. Verse 5 tells us, that we are being built on Christ, the foundation, as living stones. Picture a wall of bricks or or, or stones. You've got the foundation, and then on top of that, you've got all these many bricks and many stones making this wall. Now, you can't have a wall with just one stone in isolation from others. You can't have one rock on top of the foundation stone of Christ and call that the temple. Right? It's, it's Christ the foundation and all the church and every member in it. This picture tells us something crucial and vital, doesn't it? We have to minister to one another. This is a duty in the Christian life and being a member of Christ and His church. Peter is not talking here. He's not writing a private letter to an individual Christian. He's writing to churches And he is telling them to minister to one another. Every command he's giving is in the plural. Every word he's speaking is in the plural here. And in chapter 1, just before this, in verse 22, he said, we must love one another earnestly with brotherly love. And that principle carries through here in chapter 2 as he talks about this picture of us being living stones built up in Christ together as the temple. Being a member obligates you to serve others and minister to each other. When you come to worship, then, you're not just coming for yourself and an experience that you want to have or, 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 or something you want to get out of worship, but you're coming also to serve and minister to each other. You come to build up and strengthen the church. And this isn't just in worship, it's, it's in all of life, that it's our duty to minister to one another. Not, not to be their pastor or their elder or their deacon, but to be their member, their brother, their sister. This is so important for the church. It's so important for us, brothers and sisters, especially as a church in exile. Peter's letter is written to, church, uh, to churches in, in, living in the Roman Empire who had a strong sense that they didn't fit in and they didn't belong, that they were in exile. And Peter picks up on that. He calls them pilgrims. He calls them sojourners. He calls them exiles. 
telling them this world's not your home, heaven's your home, Christ is your king. Remember that. It's important for us, as those living in exile, to build up one another and have a strong community with one another. In his book, Live Not by Lies, Rod Dreher tells story after story about how Christians survived in communist Russia. And one of the ways they survived, one of the primary ways they survived was through close-knit, tight-knit Christian community. Stones, living stones, built up together on Christ. Not by themselves, but with each other. We are exiles living in a world that is antithetically opposed to the Christian message. And we will not survive or thrive if we don't minister to one another. Third thing Peter says, member's duty, is warfare. Warfare. Being a member of Christ and a member of his church also means that you are engaged in a continual and irreconcilable war with sin. Your own sinful desires with sin inside you and sin outside you. Verse 11, Peter writes this, Beloved, I beg you, as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Being a member of Christ and a member of His church means you are at war with your sinful desires. J.C. Ryle a great uh, evangelical Anglican bishop from the 19th century has a classic tract on holiness called Are You Fighting? And in that he writes these words, The Christian is a man of war. If we would be holy, we must fight. There's a vast quantity of religion current in the world that is not true, genuine Christianity. It satisfies sleepy consciences, but it is not good money. There are thousands of men and women who go to churches every Sunday and call themselves Christians, but you never see any fight about their religion, of spiritual strife and exertion and conflict and self-denial and watching and warring. They know nothing at all. Such Christianity may satisfy man, but it is certainly not the Christianity of the Bible. Ryle's right. Peter says the same thing. There is a war going on against members of Christ and members of His church. The flesh lusts against the Spirit, fights against the Spirit. We are called to be different and distinct from the world, pilgrims and sojourners in it, and to live like it, holy lives, set apart to Christ and His service. Being a member obligates you, gives you a duty to fight the good fight of the faith. Put sin to death. Finally, fourth thing that being a member of Christ in His church means is that you are a witness. A witness. Um, This follows from what we've seen already about our identity in Christ, right? If we're the temple of God and if we are priests in Christ, we are called to worship Him and call others to worship Him too, right? But Peter brings this out directly in verse 12. He says, Having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. Peter's saying every member has a duty and an obligation 
to be a witness, an evangelist. Peter focuses here on our works, living in such a way that people see, oh, that's different. What's going on there? What hope do they have that I don't have? You've got to live that way. And then Peter will go on to say in another chapter, in chapter 3, he'll say, and when they ask, be ready with an answer. Be ready to tell them the reason for the hope that's in you. Peter's saying every member of Christ and his church, every member of this, of this Christian community is called to this. It's not an optional you know, add-on to, the, to, to, to membership. Right? Peter says it's, it's all, you're all called to this. Not as a full-time, you know, um, uh, ordained minister of the gospel, but as a full-time Christian, a witness for Christ, not necessarily street preaching or going door-to-door, though that's okay to do, good to do, but living a hope-filled and holy life that makes people ask questions and being ready to speak when they ask the questions. This is what Christ expects and asks of every member. Worship one another, uh, warfare and witness. Those are our four duties as members here from 1 Peter. In other words, what we're seeing, right, if we, if we take a step back from this, this is, the, this is the duty of the whole church, isn't it? The church's mission is worship, discipleship, and witness given us in Scripture. That's what we exist for. And what we're seeing here in 1 Peter is he's, un, he's unpacking this and, and he's saying every Christian in the church is called to this we're all called to the church's mission. Worship, discipleship, and witness. And so it's the God-given duty of every single member, every one of you who's a member here, to say, what is my part? What can I do to fulfill these obligations and duties that I'm under because of Christ? Right? It's a glorious privilege to be a member of Christ and His church. Now, how can I, in gratitude for that, fulfill my duty to my Lord Jesus Christ in his church here? What can I do? Brothers and sisters, give yourselves to being the church, to serving, to worshiping, to continue to come to Christ, in Christ to fulfill your duty as a member. And in all of it, continue coming to Christ. Right? This is how we started What makes a member a member is that you're united to Christ by faith. Continue resting on Him. He's the great cornerstone. He's what the whole thing is built on. So rest on Him. Trust in Him. And by His grace, exalt in being a member and all that it means. And by His grace, fulfill your duty as a member. Let's pray together. Gracious God, thank You for Your Spirit who has given us life in Christ and these glorious privileges of belonging to Him and belonging to His church and these high duties, we pray they would be sweet to us and that we would be quick to do them. We pray that You Yourself would build us up in our Lord Jesus Christ as the great temple where You dwell. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.